Well, good morning, Menlo Church. So glad to be with you. Welcome to all of our campuses around the Bay Area, from San Mateo to Menlo Park to Mountain View to Saratoga. To those of you joining us online, welcome. This week, it represents kind of an important milestone for us because we are finishing this series we've been in for the last few weeks, but hopefully not finishing this conversation around the seasons of our faith and mental health. Uh, we want to normalize that conversation in our faith community. If you haven't been with us, uh, we have been talking about all the seasons of our faith and sometimes how we connect with God and community. It can feel like a spring rain. It can feel like a warm summer day. It can feel like a crisp fall morning. And today we're going to talk about how it can feel like a bitter winter chill. And if you missed any of these, I'd encourage you to go find them on our website. You can catch up online. Just like last week, I also want to mention that if this conversation for you and the, the heaviness of processing your own winter, if it, if it triggers the need for more help, more care, and a conversation, please know that there are resources available at all of our campuses this weekend. And every weekend, we have prayer teams ready to pray with you and offer support. Uh, you can also email care at menlo.church uh, for more resources and local relationships and connections. And then there's a couple national resources you can text the word start to the number 741741, and it'll be a, a text conversation with a real person about mental health and care, or you can call the national hotline 1-800-273-TALK. Now, I'm also going to be sharing some more about my own uh, story of childhood abuse and trauma, and I know that if you have some of that in your background, it can be really difficult to hear. Uh, but I hope that this warning and the way we've approached sort of the whole range of the way we think about faith and spiritual seasons, it's helped you find hope no matter what your past or your present has looked like. Now, before we get started, I'm going to pray for us. And if you've never been here before or never heard me speak, I pray kneeling. And the reason that I do that is because I don't know your season. I don't know the situation you're in. I don't know the circumstances that are ahead for you. But I believe there's a God who does. And his love, his care is available to you. So would you humble yourself even in the quiet of your heart, just with one, for one moment as we begin together. God, thank you. Thank you that no matter how incredible our week was or how incredibly difficult our week was, no matter how monumental the week ahead will be or how mundane the week ahead will be, you are with us. And so we humble ourselves, God. We submit our lives to you. Would you help us to see your hand in brand new ways today? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, all the seasons that we've talked about so far, you have some frame of reference for. You kind of at least have some idea of it. But if you are really a Californian, I just want to make clear what winter is <laughs> and what winter isn't, okay? Uh, so as you think about winter, don't think 50 degrees. That's not winter. Think five degrees, okay? So just remove the zero. I grew up in the Midwest, and most recently we lived in Colorado. Winter was brutal. You didn't have to drive to snow, as I hear you do here. It felt like snow drove to see you quite regularly. As a matter of fact, I remember at one point uh, growing up, we started shoveling and clearing snow after a really terrible blizzard from the second story of our home. That's how much snow there was. You're like, that's not possible. I promise. That's the way other parts of the world have to live. So when people asked me when we were moving to California, will you miss the snow? No, 
absolutely not. There's no part of me that will miss it. I've heard it said that here in California, one of the reasons that we pay really high taxes, um, did I push any buttons? We okay? Uh, is it's called the sunshine tax that we're paying to avoid winter. And actually, I think there's more truth in that than we would want to admit about more than just weather in our culture and in our lives. We will do just about anything to avoid the cold, bitter reality of winter in all of its definitions. Now, when we, uh, we would get hit really hard with a storm in Colorado, basically people would just kind of hunker down and they would wait uh, in their houses for it to melt just a little bit. It was inconvenient, but it was a better alternative than braving the elements. Some of you, you've been in a season of winter in your soul with God that you have just been waiting out. Some of you, you have actually been waiting out that season with God for years because you didn't want to face the elements of the winter and the implications of it. The primary emotion that I think we deal with in the winter of our souls is fear. It's how it always shows up, but it's not how it always presents and how it shows up. Oftentimes we say that we're angry. We say that we're annoyed. We say that we're frustrated. We say we're mad, that we're sad, or, or maybe you've been in church for a while. And so we sort of baptize those words. And so we say like very thoughtfully, we say, I'm just very concerned. Or we say, I'm deeply troubled. But underneath that is often fear. That's one of the reasons uh, that we've made the emotions wheel as a tool for this series, where you can take that emotion that you're feeling and find a specific psalm to be able to read and pray through that perhaps it might give you language and emotional um, support to be able to say, this is what it looks like to talk to God in the place that I feel I am right now, beyond my instant reaction. Now, let me give you an example from my past. Early in my marriage, uh, I kept getting frustrated that Alyssa didn't immediately put her dirty dishes in the dishwasher. I know, she's not in the service, we're fine. <laughs> now, Alyssa's amazing and she did lots of things to support and you know, like be a partner in life and marriage, she's awesome. We've been married for uh, 17 years, really thankful. Uh, but she would just sort of like in her mind, let the dishes collect. In my mind, I thought, pile up. And then we would do them all at once, which to me just felt reckless and irresponsible. Uh, I didn't say anything because that's how good marriages work. I just got more and more bitter. That was... <laughs> now, the reason for this to me was even now, uh, there were some things rooted in my childhood about that. In my home, in my house, uh, everything had to be kept immaculate when my dad was around because if it wasn't, he would find a reason to get very, very angry. And when things would get elevated like that, it was dangerous, it was loud, it was violent. Now, before you ask, no, my dad did not live with us early in our marriage, so why would I think about that? Well, because my dad was living rent-free in my head and in my heart. That's what trauma does. That's what unaddressed wounding does in our life. Now, let me give you a little bit of bonus from therapy. If you're taking notes, this is a line that you will not like how true it is, but it is absolutely true in my life. And that is that present passions are windows to wounds. Whatever you are most passionate about in your life, it is a window to a past hurt. Maybe you've addressed it. Maybe you're thinking about it in a healthy way. Maybe you haven't, but present passions are windows to wounds. Some of us, we have convinced ourselves that if we would just wait out the pain of our winter, 
then we won't need to go back and deal with the pain of our past. See, the winter of our life circumstances or maybe the drifting relationship that we feel with God, there is a book actually that can help us understand how incorrect that assumption is. It's not a Christian book, but it may be helpful for you called The Body Keeps the Score. And it talks about the physiological and neurological implications of you and me assuming we can just sort of stuff that stuff and bury it. But your actual physical body has responses to unaddressed pain, trauma, and loss in your life. Some of us, we're experiencing a blizzard of fear in our life, and we aren't sure what we will do about it. But I hope that as we study this final psalm in the series together, we will see the, the choice that fear will freeze you bitter or thaw you better. The choice is yours and how you and I relate to it. You can let the blizzard become ice and harden our heart even further from the connection to God and relationships that he ultimately wants, or you can begin to dig out and let the warmth of God's love and the ultimate sunshine of eternity thaw your heart for greater connection. Now, there are three lessons that help us choose our approach to fear in our life in this psalm. And the first one is that desperation clarifies dependence. Desperation clarifies dependence. When you're desperate, you'll find out what or who you really depend on. I wonder, when was the last time that in your mind you, you absolutely recognized I am desperate right now? A time that you didn't know how something was going to work out or who you would turn to for help? Maybe it was really serious, a health issue, the loss of a loved one. Maybe for you, it was a financial challenge that you didn't see coming. Maybe it was a relationship ending after years. See, those times, they make us face pretty serious fear, even if we sort of try to avoid them, even if we just bury them. See, for some of us, the challenge is that we haven't faced those kinds of things in a while in our life. And so our version of fear is still is fear, but it, it sort of becomes this FOMO, this fear of missing out in our life. It's not just about what's happened, it's about what's happening to other people and how we measure up. A funny reference to fear of missing out that's, that's happened in our culture this year, 100% is true, is people who have not gotten tickets to Taylor Swift, right? That's like a deep... FOMO in their life this year, right? There's a, a range in our life. I get it. Now, no matter the kind of desperation that you face, it's still a challenge. Even for some of us, right? It's still true to you and me, and it still points to who we really depend on when we face fear. The psalm that we're studying, it does some of that language generation for us. It, it helps us think about the emotional weight of our fear in our lives. And the psalmist begins this way. He says, hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Now, some of you would never pray to God like that. And that's exactly the point. At this point in the book of Psalms, this collection of songs and poetry, this prayer book, generations of authors have passed. And this psalmist is pulling the language from two major sources. One is the story of Job, an ancient story of human suffering. And then second is King David's vocabulary of prayer from earlier in this same book. The later authors of the Psalms learn from David's prayers. And that's one of the ways that we learn to pray as well 
By praying through Psalms, it can help us find language for our emotions and seasons with God that may unlock deeper exploration, deeper understanding, and deeper connection with God. You can hear the desperation in the author's voice, not even for God to give him an answer, but to hear him so that his prayer would break through. Now, theologically, we know because God reveals himself to be all-knowing, all-present. He hears all prayers. But this figure of speech called metonymy is about the author saying, God, would you listen and respond? Do something with the request that I'm making. Will you see me in my desperation, in my fear? See, there is obviously a winter of faith and fear that he is dealing with as he continues the desperate plea, don't hide your face from me in the day of my distress. I wonder, have you ever felt that way in the midst of your desperation, alone? The longer we feel that way, the more likely fear will help us to focus elsewhere, the more we will begin to depend on something or someone else. The Psalm is basically begging God to hurry up and answer him on the timeline of his suffering and pain. But there is a good reason that God doesn't always answer us when we pray. One reason that God does not answer your prayer or answer it the way you think he should is because sometimes your prayer is a substitute for obedience. Sometimes we are praying for guidance when we should be praying for courage. You know the right answer. You know the next step. It's just difficult. And so rather than taking that step or praying for the courage and presence of God to take it, we pray for a different answer. One reason that God allows pain in our lives is encapsulated well by the famous quote from the 20th century author C.S. Lewis. He says, God whispers to us in our comfort, but shouts to us in our pain. God is always speaking, even through the horrible things that have, should have never happened to you, but in a broken world, they were allowed to happen to you, and God has a purpose for your pain. So where are you desperate? Maybe you have found where or who you are most dependent on, even in these last few moments. You think, yeah, I think I know kind of what has my weight, my support, my dependence in life. And maybe you're comfortable with that. Maybe you feel confident in your financial wisdom, your career direction, your family planning, your resume of experiences, or your political persuasion, but they will all let you down. None of those things can hold the weight that only God was designed to hold. Often where fear really makes us dependent is on a false sense of control. Over the last few years, we should have realized that it is a false sense of control. See, we trust God right up to the point where we are no longer perceiving control. One of the key areas where we see this happen is we are unaware of what wounds do in our lives, and we all experience wounds. We just, we just sort of minimize them, and it doesn't minimize their impact. It just minimizes our ability to do something with them. When I was young and dealing with learning challenges uh, and experiencing severe dyslexia, I had an English teacher who kept me after school one day because she didn't think I really had the correct diagnosis. It was obvious that she was basically annoyed with me. And after a few minutes, just one-on-one -on -one in a classroom reading together, she stopped me and she said that I didn't have dyslexia. And if you're like, did she have a certification to give you that diagnosis? I don't think so. Um, but she could tell. She could tell uh, that I, I wasn't dyslexic. And what the problem was, she said, she said, you just aren't working that hard and you just aren't very smart. Wait for it. I was a fifth grader. 
I know. You know what I did? I went to safe adults in my life. I shared the experience. I processed the hurt and developed a plan to get support that I needed for years to come. <laughs> no, I did not do that. <laughs> Instead, I did what a lot of us do. See, my wound became a vow in that moment. I made an agreement that I would never feel that way again. And that's what we do. Wounds become vows. And that vow became bondage to how I would show up and outwork everyone in my life, even when it wasn't healthy, so that I could avoid being called stupid or lazy ever again. And that became a stronghold where I could never let people see me, that I was struggling because they could hurt me again. See, it's not too late for you and me to change that pattern, but we have to go back to some of those wounds. We said, oh, it's not a big deal. It doesn't make a difference. I'm not really scared. It's fine. For your fear to stop freezing you into more bitterness, for God to begin to thaw your and my heart from the lies of the fear that we've been captured by, we always have to go back to those places of wounding and agreements we've made that are lies, which leads us to something that really is highlighted in the second lesson from this psalm. And that's that awareness changes appetite. Awareness changes appetite. We will be hungry for different things based on what we're aware of in our life. Have you ever had something instantly spoil your appetite? One of the places that I would regularly get uh, meals with folks back in Colorado, there was a dumpster right by the restaurant that several restaurants fed into. And my first few times going to that restaurant, I, I didn't remember, didn't put it together. So I'd walk by that dumpster and just the fumes of it would instantly take away my appetite. I couldn't stand it. Eventually, I actually started parking somewhere else that created a longer walk, but I didn't have to pass that dumpster. I just avoided it. After a while, the thing is like, <laughs> that's how a lot of us, I think, handle our dumpsters in life. We just learn to, in our minds, avoid it. Avoid that memory, avoid that pain, avoid that person, rather than dealing with it. But the problem is that dumpster, if it's left unaddressed, it doesn't smell better over time. It smells worse. It doesn't do less damage in your and my heart, it does more. It doesn't make us less bitter and more hopeful. It calcifies our heart even greater. See that when that's our response to difficult things in our life, we are actually defaulting to a lower level of thinking. You are all brilliant, you know this. Fight, flight, or freeze are the reactions when we settle for that low place of fear in our life. It's only by processing those wounds and past experiences, those ideas and experiences that we can move beyond them. Our higher level thinking that's unlocked when we are willing to process pain Grief and fear, it includes those areas of our brain that connect to logic, to sound judgment, to sympathy, to problem solving. Not when we excuse it, but when we face it. Our psalmist shows what this might look like in our following verses. He says, for my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread because of, uh, because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. See, smoke, it, it carries this idea that flames and fuel that fed the smoke, they have gone now. And now all that's left is the smoke, the residue, the reminder of their pain. And that smoke will soon be gone as well and quickly forgotten. 
The psalmist is pointing to the pain of burning bones and mortality, the temporary nature of their existence. He's so grieved. He's so scared about a situation that he's facing that he's lost his appetite. See, this kind of fasting is the kind of fasting you don't choose. It's the kind of fasting that your life circumstances can sometimes choose for you. Your fear, desperation sometimes chooses for you. The awareness of our life without the dependence on God can remove lots of appetites for us. The kinds of things in life that fear can convince you and me. The thing is, we promise ourselves we won't. We promise ourselves we'll try this this time. But if we let fear have control, we'll run back to those things that we know didn't help last time. We're pretty sure won't help this time, but we're going to try again anyway. The birds that are depicted, they point to this idea of loneliness and isolation, separated from the kinds of things and people that can help. They did not travel in a group. As we read these words, we can all remember times when it feels like we are in this never-ending loop of fear, sadness, and disappointment, a winter with no spring. No one can help. No one can support us. No one will come to our aid. There's actually a tool to help us inspect how we view our winter, to make sure that we are genuinely feeling our way through it with our emotions, but that our emotions are not being given the controlling steering wheel of our life. The tool is a list that clarifies that even though it feels like it, your pain and your problems, my pain and my problems are not permanent, pervasive, or personal. We convince ourselves when we are in unhealthy places as it relates to pain in our life that it will never change. We say things like, this will never get better. That's not true. That's not how seasons work. That's not how life works. And when you hear that narrative in your mind and heart, Remind it whose you are. Remind it the truth that this season will change, that winter always has spring after. This idea that things are pervasive, right? Everything in my life is ruined. Nothing in my life is going well. Everything I touch falls apart. Those are pervasive lies. And then personal, this is all about me. No one else experiences this. I'm the only one that's faced this. Those are lies. They are not true. See, some of us, when we believe these things, we turn God into a bully with a magnifying glass, and we're just ants running around. But even those awful things in a broken world that we experience, God is lovingly leading us through them. When we believe this lie that we can't get help, and that fear is forever, we make some really, really bad decisions. When I was eight years old and uh, my brother James was 16, he left home for 15 years. He was tired of the abuse and he saw no way out, so he did what he felt like he had to do to survive. God performed a miracle to bring him back into our lives after we thought he had died 15 years later, he had served time in prison for international drug trafficking and through some pretty supernatural circumstances was able to get out. I know, you're like, didn't we do a background check on you? It wasn't me, it was my brother. <laughs> but even now, while I love my brother deeply, he would admit to you, it's really hard for him to not always assume that it's winter in his life, that he let those Wounds become vows, become strongholds in his life, that this bondage took over. 
And even now, when he's faced with challenges, fear takes over. And it might seem extreme, but I'm telling you, fear will either freeze you bitter or thaw you better, depending on where or who you run to with it. Finally, the psalmist shares an important lesson in that humiliation creates humility. Humiliation creates humility. Even humiliation I wouldn't want for anyone. God will teach us through the adversity of humiliation what humility really looks like. There are lots of times in our faith when seasons of winter circumstantially in our connection with God can drive us to fear, in large part because of things that maybe have been done to us. That's part of my brother's story. Maybe that's part of your story. And I hope that this is a place that if that's your story, that this is a place you could raise your hand and ask for help. Just because God can use difficult parts of our past doesn't mean we sit in them. Doesn't mean we don't ask for help. Doesn't mean we don't address abusers and perpetrators of our abuse. But there are other times when a sense of distance with God and fear, it got created as a result of choices we have made. And sometimes we rationalize that, well, I guess I'm, I should experience this. Like I'm do this, I deserve this. The psalmist gives us some language here as well and says, all the day, my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse for I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass, especially grass in California. For Israel, they regularly lived in the tension that God loved them, but also brought conviction and judgment to them simultaneously. Both things were true, even through their enemies at times. It was always to bring them back into relationship. It was always for the point of restoration. But we anguish just like this psalmist does, even as we experience that pain and that correction in our lives. Now, before you assume that this only had to do with the Jewish people in the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews in the New Testament quotes the book of Proverbs to make the very same point and says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. It's been said in our moment that our world wants to make the simple complex and the complex simple. And when we convince ourselves that we can think our way or work our way out of humility, we will be humbled by God because he loves us. It's for our ultimate good. It's that we might step into closer relationship with him. And if you're not a Christian, that you might discover relationship with him. There is humiliation we can face that is dehumanizing. And you may need specific help because of what you've gone through. But I'm telling you, God can still even work in your life. Lessons that we wouldn't have signed up for, but it turns out God was going to use later and God still loved us even through that hurt and heartache. I speak as one who has experienced that very reality. The biggest thing in Colorado when you got ready for winter, the biggest thing about winter really was how you prepared for it. Every year there was this whole industry that you would see emerge of people that would come and what they did is they would bring an air compressor in the back of their pickup truck and they would come to your house and they would blow out all the remaining water from your sprinkler lines before they shut them off for the season. And if you're thinking, why would they need to do that? Well, when winter isn't 50 degrees, but it's five, 
you have to be pretty careful about water, right? Now, here's the thing. You never knew who had actually done this work. Like what of your neighbors made this wise decision and got it done until later on, until a really warm day in late winter or early spring? Because those broken sprinkler lines and those broken pipes inside the wall, they finally thawed and water would come gushing out of them. The damage happened in the winter, but it was revealed in the spring. And it happened because of the fall. So for some of you, the message is that it's the perfect day today to acknowledge how you're really feeling because there is another season coming and the perfect time to prepare for it is right now. It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to prepare for what's next. Otherwise, fear will freeze you into a state of inaction and distraction from God. And even if you think you can fake your way through it, there is damage happening in the soil of your heart and life that you will not realize for the next season. I knew people in Colorado who had their sprinklers break every year because they didn't turn them off properly. And then I knew people who only prepared their sprinklers for winter, but as a matter of fact, there were people that didn't just prepare them for winter, they also prepared their lawns for spring. What they would do is after a really nice snow, snowstorm, they would put fertilizer on the top of their snow. It looked ridiculous. But as the snow melted and the water went into the soil, so did the fertilizer. They were always preparing for the next season. They were always remembering that this wasn't it, that whether they were experiencing this or experiencing this, there was going to be change later. They knew that. They knew that at the moment it wouldn't help, but they had a vision of the sun coming back for the spring. Some of you, you need to invest in spring in your practices of community, prayer, Bible study, worship, not because it fixes how you feel today, but because it fertilizes your soul for tomorrow. Some of you have said, I'll, I'll do that stuff when it's convenient. I'll do that stuff when it's easier. I'll do that stuff. We even use this language, don't we? We, we say, I'm just in a season. I'll do it for the next season. But just like in life, the best time to prepare for that is now. Over the course of the last couple of weeks, you've heard just a little bit of my story, and you can probably fill in some of the gaps on your own. It's heavy, and there's some really big trauma that God has helped me to navigate through counselors and support over the course of many years. I hope that you aren't or that you didn't have to experience the trauma that I have, but we all have trauma. Some of it is big T trauma is the way it's described sometimes, like really awful, horrendous events. Some of it is small T trauma, but both of them add up. I've heard trauma described this way. Trauma is you experiencing something you didn't deserve or you not experiencing something you did deserve. And I want to just give you permission to understand that even if you go, well, I didn't experience what you did, Phil, that's okay. You still experienced wounds that became vows that you made bondage out of that became strongholds. It's a gift for all of us to step in in this conversation. Look, I, I hope that we are normalizing the need for mental health care, mental health conversation as a community that you're reaching out for support if you're in crisis, if you're facing abuse, if you're fa facing a mental health crisis right now. And remember, those resources are available and they're not going anywhere. 
campuses have those prayer teams ready to respond and pray with you today. You can email care at menlo.church. You can text the word start to that national number 741741, or you can call that national hotline 1-800-273-TALK. There is a way that the Bible talks about how we relate to God. That when we understand who he is and how powerful he is, that we would fear him. It's a word in context that is about righteous reverence, desiring to be in right relationship with God. We understand that that's actually by grace through faith in Jesus. A desire to be in right relationship, that's why Jesus came to die for us. Oswald Chambers, he puts it this way, he says, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Let me pray for you. God, we lift up our time, our times, our time on this planet that the reverence, fear, and focus of our lives would be directed to only you, that we would depend on you today in whatever season we face, that, God, all seasons carry challenge. There isn't one that's better than the other, and that, God, our experience with you becomes more fruitful and more faithful as we experience each one in community and in connection to you. As we reflect on this psalm, as we pray through some of these words, as we take communion together, as we sing God, whatever condition our soil, whatever condition the soul of our lives is in, would you meet us there and give us hope today that you are with us. It's in Jesus' name.